This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Last week was like the reverse of the usual in that Ravi was at home in New York City and I was on the road in Puerto Vallarta for vacation with my family. Now I am home in Kansas City and it is so cold and it feels, <laughs> I mean, it's it's cold, but it feels so much colder because it's not Mexico. And of course, back to form, Ravi, you're in Miami. I'm in Miami for some work, although glad to be here. I'm actually heading out of Miami just as all the Art Basel people are coming in, which I don't know a lot about Art Basel. I don't but know it seems anything. Like, what is that? I don't exactly know, but it's basically every fancy person I know appears to be coming to Miami uh, as I'm leaving, which is great because I got to head to DC. Is from here. Art Basel a person or a kind of art? I think it's some kind of gathering related to art that just really rich people go to Miami. There's a lot of crypto meetups, ah. things like that, you know? <laughs> that makes so, sense. Yeah, that is not why I'm here. No, Randomly, no. a group I belong to, uh, like an education group, picked this week accidentally to be when we gather down here. So we're a bunch of like square education people amongst the sort of the crypto hip Although I would say the mood is dark among the crypto people. Yeah, I, I hear it's not <laughs> yeah. going well uh, because of the the freed guy. Yeah, well, he's apparently doing an interview tonight at 5 p.m., which I guess will be already happened by the time this podcast airs. So he's doing like a big interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin, I think, tonight. So I assume that's like virtual, right? Because he's like not coming back into the country. <laughs> yeah, I guess he's like <laughs> at the Bahamas or something. But actually, while we're at it, I want to make one request of our listeners. So right now, if you're a Spotify listener, uh, they have this year in review thing that they give you where they say, here are your top listens, yada, yada, yada. And they give you these postable things that you could post to your Instagram, your Twitter, et cetera. If Majority 54 is in your rankings of top podcasts that they give you for the year, one request I have of you is to post it on Instagram, Twitter, wherever you have your most following followers, both perhaps, and just, you know, give us a shout out because that's a good way for us to spread the word about the pod. And so you could find it on your Spotify. It'll show right up uh, today. 
and they give you these little postable things and it's it's a, it's good advertisement for us and allows us to get the word out about this pod right on cosine it takes us right into talking trash which is about twitter ravi tell us about what the heck's going on at twitter because twitter feels different to me than it did a few weeks ago obviously this is about musk but uh like is twitter still going to be like a place where people who think like us are going to want to engage do you think yeah, people are trying to read these tea leaves and say, oh, like there's some grand plan that Musk has where he wants to degrade the value of Twitter so that his creditors will you know, have a fire sale and sell him back his debt, essentially. There's all these theories out there. And I heard really smart people positing these theories, like Kara Swisher was entertaining this on her pod the other day. I think it's bullshit. I think this is an erratic guy who does have some gifts, but is way over his head and has been both losing advertisers, which is where his beef with Apple is. Apple suspended advertisements on Twitter, and I imagine they're probably a really big advertiser. But he's also been losing staff. And it seems like he's just trying to hold on right now. He's obviously implemented certain changes to Twitter that he's had to pull back uh, notoriously, like the pay for service, blue check mark piece of things. But it seems to me right now that there's very little innovation coming out of Twitter that he's promised. There, He's losing advertisers. He's losing staff, which in a weird way, if he can keep the service alive, will actually help his bottom line because he's, he's got lower expenses. But it's a dangerous game he's playing where some of these staff members are really crucial. Like, you know, at one point he had fired the person who was in charge of security at the front desk and giving badges out and they couldn't get into the building. And he like <laughs> so- had to call that guy and have him come back and let everybody in. Right. Yeah. Which is a humbling moment. I wouldn't say probably humbled him, but it would be humbling to anybody else. <laughs> so he, he's got all this going on. He promised a content moderation council and didn't in that he would be running all major decisions by the content moderation council. And he reneged on that and then blamed it on activists. And then turn that into like Twitter polls that he did to decide things. Yeah, he's doing Twitter. It's total chaos. I had some sense that maybe, because I don't like Twitter, maybe the chaos of it all would yield a better Twitter. I don't think that's what's happened. The Intercept also just reported in the past 24 hours that uh, prominent anti-fascist organizers and journalists have had their accounts suspended, and they trace it to this one right-wing activist who's been in a back and forth with Elon Musk and essentially sending, the, the allegation from The Intercept is that this activist basically has been sending Musk and Musk's team names and Musk has been taking them down, which if true, we'll see if this gets proven true. The Intercept generally does pretty good reporting. If this is true, this is the exact opposite of the free speech environment that Musk has promised us. So I would say I'm fairly disappointed by it all. And you know, right wing and, and alternative media sources seem to be lining up behind them. Predictably, they're basically fanboying it up. It's all very disappointing. And I think Twitter will survive. It'll just be a chaotic place. Well, I can tell you my personal observation of it so far, like as a user, is since Musk took over, I've lost about 100 followers a day, which I'm not sure if that is people leaving the platform, if that is them going through and cleaning out bots. I have some doubt that it's them cleaning out bots when they don't seem to have the like bandwidth, like the personnel to actually physically do that, like to put in the hours to, to find them and to do that. I, I'm not sure what it is, but like it, since he took over, I, you know, 
I'm not saying like, oh, woe is me. I've lost followers. I'm just saying like to me, it's a metric of what's going on over there. I've lost over 14,000 followers uh, oh my God. S- since it started. But my understanding is, is that right-wing accounts of similar size to mine, I have, you know, now after losing a bunch, I have like, I think 372,000. So right around that size, uh, right-wing accounts are growing by the same rate that like accounts like mine, the following is going down. Now, maybe that is people leaving the platform. I'm not sure what it is, but it is very strange. But what's more concerning to me is that while they claim that they're decreasing hate speech and they claim, I don't know how they're doing that or how that's measured. And they claim that they're, you know, that was big, his big thing before he was like, I think Twitter is way too many bots. And so they claim they're getting rid of these bots. I am getting more uh, like anti-Semitic, hateful replies, but interestingly, not not exclusively from bots, from like actual accounts, which makes me think it's just people being emboldened uh, to be like, there's not going to be any consequence for this. So I'm just going to talk about how this guy's a Jew. So I, you know, I really like Twitter and, and I've, I've been a huge participant in Twitter. So it's disappointing to me because it seems to be coming a, more of a, like a right wing echo chamber. And I don't really know if that matters in the long run or if that's just annoying. Yeah, I I don't know how much it matters either, but I think this is along the lines of a trend. I had a good conversation with a a friend who wrote a book about left-wing media bias the other day, and I was talking to her about, well, I'm like, yeah, perhaps there was a left-wing media bias at a certain point, which I, you know, not that important to debate it right now, whether that was true or not, but without question, the rails are being controlled by the right wing. You look at the top podcasts in the in the world, they're dominated by the Daily Wire, Rogan-esque type things, you know, like even the things that they you could classify as sort of mixed or left wing are things like breaking points, which are alt media, pro Elon Musk, you know, January 6th was an inside job type conspiracy bullshit. So like the podcasts are dominated by the right wing. And we're talking about like you compare MSNBC or CNN's ratings to how many people tune into a Ben Shapiro show, for example, on a given week. Or just Fox News. By far more. Yeah, at Fox News, even if you talk about who's dominating cable news, who's dominating podcasting, who's now dominating social media, right? Like who owns Twitter is a person who has already said he's going to vote for Ron DeSantis in the next election and called on people to vote for Republicans in the midterms and is allegedly taking down left-wing accounts. So all this like they censored uh, Hunter Biden's laptop story, yada, yada, though true, that was the past. And this is the present and the future looks even more bleak when it comes to right wing domination. So all this victim complex needs to stop like this, you know, this idea that the right wing is a grieved party here. Yeah, because when you really boil it down, the portions of the quote unquote media that seems to still have a more liberal bent or at least like not a conservative bent, it's really people who make movies and television shows. And I think people who make music, right? Like that's, yep. that's really it. So anything and that has to do with actually changing people's opinions or being about politics is dominated by conservatives at this point, which you can see how if you're going to characterize the movie slash TV industry and the music industry as the media, it's a very short distance between there and saying media is controlled by Jews. Not to like be a one note guy on this, but like that's Kanye's 
when he's, ta- you know, I'm not trying to defend Kanye, but when he's talking about the media, he's talking about the part he interacts with, the people who produce music, right? Which there's a long history as to why, first of all, Jews don't control that part, but why they're overrepresented. And it's really got a lot to do with like, they're not being other industries that let Jewish people in, you know, however many years ago. And so they like found a niche in the creative world, just as they had done in Europe. So with all that said, like, that is scary to me that that narrative can continue that the liberals slash Jews control the media when neither group does. (laughs) So yeah, and maybe we'll go. Let's let's pair this with this Trump dinner that he had since we're talking about Kanye sure. and anti-Semitism. So Trump had Kanye West over at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, As one does. Yeah. Among West's entourage was a 24-year-old live streamer named Nick Fuentes, who is a known Holocaust denier. I've actually watched some of his videos for something I was doing just for research. This guy is full-blown, insane, hateful. Like, this is not the Jews control the media type stuff. It's not euphemism. I've seen it too. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely terrible stuff. I would say this is a a step, right? Like, this is not... Trump has been blatantly anti-Semitic for some time now. Nick Fuentes, to me, is a a new step in the anti-Semitism here. And what's amazing to me, there's a good David Frum article in The Atlantic about this, is just how muted the response continues to be. There, When you hear McConnell talk... For instance, they ask McConnell about this, right? And they ask other congressional leaders about it. What you will not hear is Donald Trump is an anti-Semite. This is unacceptable. What you will hear are things like anybody who dines with anti-Semites is not going to win the nomination. So they they retreat to general language whenever they're talking about him, with and, some exceptions. And they, they distance it from their own opinion, which is why you right. say things like, well, they're not going to win the nomination. You, What he's doing is he's trying to position himself as a pundit. And, yes. you know, I'm I'm just telling you how I think it'll play politically, not how it plays morally in my own sense of the world. Yeah, exactly. And it also is worth mentioning that two prominent members of the House Republican Conference, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene, have both been, uh, you know, in in the company of Nick Fuentes, didn't apologize for it. And McCarthy has promised both of them important committee assignments for the next session. So this is about the Republicans in Congress, too. You know, I don't do a lot of calling for Josh Hawley to do anything, (laughs) you know, but like he's my U.S. senator. So and it did bother me. And so last week I said that I expected him to call on Trump to disavow Nick Fuentes. And a week later, what Josh Hawley said was, well, Trump can have dinner with whoever he wants to have dinner with, which is like the opposite of calling on him to dis. I mean, so, you know, that's pretty uh, upsetting. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And the language is so fascinating to me because Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, right? You know, people who I probably have a lot of disagreements uh, with, like when they talk about being pro-Palestinian, for example, which is, you know, they're, whether you agree with them or not, the right will say that they're anti-Semitic for that. And they, they will be use very barbed, specific language, mm-hmm, right, calling exactly. them anti-Semitic. Meanwhile, Trump is literally sitting with a guy who's like saying the Holocaust didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like what I would challenge anybody, anybody you're sitting down for dinner with, you know, on the holidays or whatever family members, when they start talking about the extremism of AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, 
is to be like, let's make a little chart. Just break out the butcher paper and be like, let's look at Nick Fuentes and let's and Marjorie Taylor Green Jewish space lasers, for example. And then let's let's look at Ilhan Omar's record here. Let's let's just compare the two. It's bullshit. It's totally, totally different. Look, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with everything that Ilhan Omar has said. Um, yeah, neither am I. But what I will say is that there is a difference between taking exception to another country's policy, their, their, like their actual policy toward their neighbor, their policy about their border, and saying that an entire people are bad. Right. Like, I, there, there is a difference. Like, you know, I, I, I'm trying to come up with an analogy. It's very difficult to come up with an analogy, right? You know what? I guess it is. We're going to discuss uh, Qatar in a moment. We're going to talk about the World yeah. Cup. We are going to talk about things that the nation of Qatar does that we think are wrong morally, right? And that a lot of people very credibly say are morally wrong. Now, I'm not equating that to Israel, obviously, but like in Elon Omar's mind, that's what she that's what she's doing. She's saying this right. thing this nation is doing, I think it is immoral. That does not equal if you take exception to what Qatar's doing in the World Cup, all Qataris are bad. Like it's right. not they're not the same thing, right? But they know that. <laughs> that's right. what's so frustrating. Is they know that it's not the same thing. As you all know from listening to this show, I drink AG1 from Athletic Greens every day. So does Ravi. So do most of the people who produce this show. So do members of our family. Also, at the end of every one of these ads, we talk about the travel packs you're going to get. And I would just tell you, like, the travel packs are so clutch. I just went on this trip to Puerto Vallarta. And so every day, Diana and I would mix our greens. So I got, I got two tips for you. One, drink like a couple of sips from your bottled water first while you're traveling to make room for the greens, then pour them in. Then if you have any additional supplement, like I take creatine. So what you got to do is, is you keep that little travel pouch and you take your powder from whatever it is that you mix in, you put it in the travel pouch, and then you use that to funnel it into the water bottle. Works perfectly. You don't get stuff anywhere. You just mix it right up after you put the cap on and you drink it. It's perfect. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and those five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Nobody really wants to think about life insurance because when you think about life insurance, you're thinking about like uh, when you die, right? And it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of a bummer. But the thing is, is what you don't want to have to think about is what happens after you die from an economic perspective. So you can at least put yourself at ease about that if you decide to get life insurance. We have it. I strongly suggest that you get it. And if you take my advice, I would strongly suggest that you try Policy Genius. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $17 a month for $500,000 of coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. That's pretty important. There's no added fees, and your personal info is private. Also pretty important. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. 
Well, let's actually talk about the World Cup. So shout out to the men's national team. I was actually on the plane yesterday while this match was happening. It's The only comparable experience I have is if you remember when I was on the plane when the election was called for Biden, <laughs> yeah. when I was heading to Costa Rica. Everybody was watching this damn thing, and it was a riveting. I don't know if you caught the end of that match, but it was hair-raising. Like We were basically had to hold on for like 55 minutes one one nothing if 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 the Iranians I saw the scored. goal and then I didn't see the rest but I oh, man. I saw what Pulisic is that his name like I'm not a big I soccer so. guy yeah Neither basically just yeah. ram his uh I mean I'm sorry his reproductive organs into the knee <laughs> yeah. of the Iranian goalie <laughs> to score a goal for his country so yeah that that was painful to watch but we're not here to talk about the sports angle of this we're here to talk about the politics of it and the politics have been pretty interesting. And I think the starting point for this is that Qatar bought this World Cup unquestionably totally. in 2010. From and, be, beat out what? The United States and Japan. And South Korea. It's just crazy. And, you know, this is a place, you know, a country that had never sent anybody to the World Cup before, that the weather is so hot that they couldn't hold it during the time they always hold the World Cup, which is what we call summer. It's so hot in, in Qatar that they had to move it to now which is right in the middle of the European Soccer League calendar. So they basically had to stop all these players, by the way, that will cup play in Europe, so many of them. So they stopped the calendar. They didn't have enough stadiums. They don't have that many people. This is a, a place smaller than Connecticut, I think. Which, by the way, all those other countries have enough stadiums already. Like, oh, they yeah. don't have to build stadiums. Or, or we're talking about minimal building, right? They had to spend $220 billion to host this event. Brazil 2014 was $15 billion. And we're talking about, you know, World Cup and Olympics. World Cup is so much smaller than Olympics, but this dwarfs any Olympic spending. Sochi 2024, Tokyo 2020, these are like $20 billion. Those are the most expensive Olympics ever. 10 times plus the amount of money spent on this. They thought it was going to be an advertisement for how great this country is. And essentially, <laughs> it's blown back in their face where people are like, all right, well, let's talk about your country. And one of the notable things about their country is that they have the death penalty for being gay amongst, you know, huge migrant labor uh, crisis that's happening to which their defense is it's rarely enforced <laughs> i'm sorry to laugh but that's crazy yeah their defense is it's really enforced but god forbid you try to have a rainbow anything right. they're confiscating it so let me just give you a rundown of what some of these protests look like there's something that have nothing to do with cutter so the iranian team ahead of their game of england during the national anthem refused to sing their own national anthem which i say what an act of courage. No kidding. <laughs> I don't know how many of those players have to go home, but I'm sure they have family members who are going to be retaliated against. You know, there's so many people being murdered uh, due to those protests there. And I think it's a, a great example of the people and the country are not always the same thing. And often they're very different. And I had mixed feelings watching the Iranians, honestly. I, me too. Like, I, I want the United States to beat Iran, but I didn't want those players to lose. Yeah. And like, you know, kudos to them. There was a great clip of the captain of the American team. There was an Iranian journalist who tried to give him a gotcha question about the pronunciation of Iran and about America's human rights record. And he had a really classy response, both saying, I'm sorry for mispronouncing your country's name, but then also being like, very subtly being like, this moral relativism that you're preaching is, is not going to fly with me. Like, you know, it's all about progress. My apologies on... Uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, yeah, that being said, 
You know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and, and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. You know, growing up for me, I was I, I grew up in a in a white family with an obviously an African American heritage and background as well. So um, I had a little bit of uh, different cultures, and I, I was very very easily able to assimilate in different different cultures. So um, you know, not everyone has that that ease and uh, the ability to do that. And obviously, it takes longer to understand. And through education, I think it's it's super important. Like you just educated me now on the pronunciation of of your country. So. Um, um, yeah, it, it's a it's a process. I think as as long as you see progress, uh, that's the most important thing. What I loved about it, and what I thought was so impressive, was that he found a way to defend because they were saying like you because he he's African American, and they were saying you're discriminated against in your country, and he found a way to both defend America without sort of uh, papering over the fact that yes. There are ongoing problems, clearly, with discrimination, and so. But what and what he focused on is he was like, but you know, the thing is, is we we keep making progress. Like there's right. a long way to go, but I'm really proud of the way my country continues to strive for progress, which was uh, obviously, you know, an implicit comparison to Iran, which its leadership seems to be trying to claw it backwards. Exactly, and it was. We talk a lot about like the Obama esque messaging. This was a perfect Obama esque message. It literally could have come out of Obama's yeah. mouth. I doubt that's going to be aired on state television in, in Iran. But if there are people of Iran watching that, often it's very dicey for us to be commenting on other people's domestic politics because I imagine like a protester in Iran, like what Americans say is not very helpful to them often. But if you're looking at it, you're like, well, that's a standard that we can all live by, which is let's make our country better than it was yesterday. And it takes a little bit of the judgment out of it. But, you know, that wasn't the only protest. The English players at the very same time took a knee in support of Black Lives Matter. Can, can I say, I think it's worth noting that what Colin Kaepernick started in the United States, it's gone from something that, you know, the right wing wants it to be digested in a black or white thing that says, like, either you're pro-America or you're, you're, you're not, right? And, you know, we've been trying to have this more nuanced debate ever since it started in the United States. But that is a lot harder for them to try to characterize it as one thing or the other, when now what he started is spreading throughout the world. Now they're doing it in the UK. And most importantly, I don't know how anybody in the United States could look at what the uh, Iranian players did and say, oh, well, they're that's wrong that they didn't stand for their own anthem. So I think that that is actually quite cool that it is now becoming an international way to protest policies and not just not, you know, something that is not patriotic, in fact, is becoming seen, I think, I hope, as what it is, which is actual patriotism. Totally. I totally agree. And, you know, a lot of this attention, though, on the protests has, has focused on the LGBTQ issues and workers issues, because a lot of workers are migrant workers in Qatar that had to build some of these stadiums. A lot of them died. There's a huge dispute over the data on how many of them, in fact, died, et cetera. But, you know, the the, the English captain, Harry Kane, wanted to wear an armband with the pride rainbow on it, but back down in the face of sanctions from FIFA, which FIFA is just a totally corrupt organization. Uh, Americans tried to redesign their national crest to replace the red and white stripes with rainbow colors. This was banned. Spectators of multicolored, multicolored hats have been told to take them off. So this is going on, and, and uh, you know, certain figures on the American and international right have 
taken issue with this. Pierce Morgan uh, basically was like, well, like, you know, all sorts of countries have issues with human rights. You talk about Senegal, Morocco, Tunisia, where it's also illegal to be gay. Ghana's parliament pushed a law, making it illegal to express sympathy for gay people that is, seems to be poised to pass. In Saudi Arabia, you get castrated if you're gay. Costa Rica, he said, has human trafficking problems. And then you start to go through the relativism. You start to talk about America where abortion's banned in certain places. And I'm like, and Matt Walsh had a very similar comment from Daily Wire. It's just amazing to me that this this becomes a moment of moral relativism where people are this very same people. Pierce Morgan, for instance, went after Chamath Palihapitiya, who had basically said he did when Chamath said he didn't care about the Uyghur genocide in China. Pierce Morgan called him shameful. So I'm like, well, why is it okay for you to comment on other countries' human rights issues? And if you look at the Daily Wire, they're a nonstop China human rights stuff, which I'm I'm happy that people call out China's human rights issues. But the minute it becomes left-wing people calling out issues in other countries with a left-wing lens, then it becomes, well, hold on, respect local custom, which to me, I just say it's bullshit. Like if you want to advertise your country on the world stage and spend $220 billion to steal a World Cup, we're going to talk about some of the shit happening in your country. What if Cutter instead had said uh, that the players can't wear a cross necklace, like a, a, you right. know, a crucifix around their neck. Like, how would they feel about that? Right? Like, what? I mean, so it it is all about who they are okay with oppressing. But I think really the point that they're missing is that it's not about a question of whether you should criticize the country or not. It's a question of whether countries that have these massive human rights abuses and these terrible human rights records should be rewarded by the world with economic opportunities and tourism. That's really what the conversation is. 100%. And it's different to play in it than to host it. It's also different to steal it than right. to host it. <laughs> right. Like, which is, they stole it. And it's like, and you know, and, and Pierce Morgan's like, the time to criticize this was 2010. I'm like, who was watching the FIFA deliberations, which by the way, people did criticize it in 2010. Yeah, it was, I, even I remember and I don't follow soccer. Yeah, it was totally bullshit. But like, we're going to still criticize it because you stole it. And we're going to continue to say this is a country, like, here's how I think about it. If you're going to host a major international event, why don't we say not only do you have to have adequate stadiums and weather, but you also have to have laws that allow people from different backgrounds to come into your country and feel included and safe. Like that should be a, a prerequisite to hosting an international event. Yeah, or or like if you don't currently do those things, you have to commit to them. And so for instance, I don't have a problem with Cutter deciding that they're going to go out and, you know, in a in a vacuum, if it was like we're going to go employ a lot of people because we're going to build these stadiums. Here's the problem. They spent over 100 billion dollars and they did it while paying migrant workers basically nothing. And when you look closely, and some of these things have been slightly reformed in the last few years because they've had to, but when you look closely, it's really slavery. Like a lot of these people who died were there with, they had to check with their sponsor before they could change jobs, before they could leave the country. I have spent only a total in my life of six days in Qatar, like two days on the way into Afghanistan, maybe three days, and then three days on the other. I don't remember. There's a uh, there's an airbase there that I went through and like you stay for a couple of days while you get outfitted with all your stuff and then you go in and then on the way out, they make you hang out for like two days and decompress and wait on a flight home. And in that time, uh, I got to go out 
one, I think maybe two times in Qatar, like me and, and a buddy of mine, uh, an army buddy of mine who was there at the same time. And he was stationed there all the time. So he took me out and like showed me stuff. We went to a mall and all that. And you, know, you can read about the fact that 95% of the labor is done by people who are not Qataris. But like when you see it, it is a completely different thing. Like you have to understand that the money that comes down from the government because of their natural resources means that you literally don't work if you're a citizen of Qatar. Like you don't have a job. 10% of the population of the people in that country are citizens. Right. That's the other thing. 10% of the people there are citizens. Those people don't work. That's fine, except for the fact that if you're going to import 90% of your population to do work, you have to pay them and you can't treat them like slaves. Uh, so, you know, that's my problem with it is like, it'd be great if we were just saying like, okay, go build a bunch of stadiums and then pay good wages and create a good quality of life. That's fine. But that's not what they're doing. They basically brought in slaves to do it. There's no truer way to say I love you than by taking care of each other. That's why this year the gift of health is all you need. And with Everlywell, you can find 30 plus at-home lab tests, vitamins, supplements, and more for every person on your holiday list. This is a great idea. I'm totally going to go there and buy some holiday gifts for Diana. It's no problem saying that because at this point, I don't think she listens to this show. Uh, I mean, she listens to me all the time. Tell her about the show. So I think we're good here. I think I can tell you this. It's a secret between you and me. I'm going to go to Everly Well to do some holiday shopping. Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you with personalized results and accessible tools for long-term health. With over 30 at-home lab tests and high-quality vitamins and supplements, you'll be able to find the perfect test for you or your loved one. The gift of health has never been so easy to share than it is this holiday. For listeners of the show, Everlywell is offering a discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash majority54. That's everlywell.com slash majority54 for 20% off your next at-home lab test. Everlywell.com slash majority54. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does, and how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded, a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Lieber covers everything you need to know about voting in the U.S. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks how we can make our system more inclusive, because our democracy works better when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jason, I know we still have the Georgia Senate election going on, really important, but I wanted to take a step back to talk about a societal trend that really isn't specific to elections, but I think gets at something deeper that's being exploited in our politics. And I think this is the loneliness crisis or isolation crisis that's happening in America right now. So uh, Bryce Ward in the Washington Post a couple of days ago had this op-ed where he looked at census data that showed that there has been a precipitous increase in the amount of time that Americans are spending alone, and it's not specific to the pandemic, or at least not only about the pandemic. So at starting, you know, in about 20, from 2010 to 2013, the average American spent about six and a half hours per week with friends. And just a few years later, that six and a half hours by 2019 goes down to four hours. 
So six and a half hours to four hours, 2019. Then the pandemic happens and it drops even more to 2.45 hours. So from six and a half hours per week with friends to uh, over two, between two and three hours with friends. So more than half it drops. And this is, this is a trend across all demographics, across people who work remotely and not, uh, no matter where you live, rural, urban, et cetera, men, women, all age groups. It's particularly pronounced among teenagers because teenagers spend more time with friends. So when it dropped for them, it it's dropped pretty precipitously. So, you know, they went, teenagers are spending 11 fewer hours with friends each week in 2021 than they did in 2010. Here's what I wonder about that. And I think it's at the heart of all this. And I, I didn't really see it covered in, in some of the articles uh, that you shared about it, which is that how do you classify the time that is not spent physically with friends, but is spent virtually with friends? And the reason I wonder about this is because I've been trying to sort this out as a dad, right? Because like when True gets home from school, he wants to get on his iPad because he's got a couple of friends who they play these like these games together that are like really wholesome, harmless games. And but they they get on and they can talk to each other on like what's basically the messenger app, and then they play these games together. And my instinct initially was like, it's too much screen time. You know, I I don't like how long you spend on this. But then the more I've thought about it, I'm like, okay. When I was growing up, you know, my brothers and my my friends all lived within like I don't know 200 meters of my house, and so you know, and I know it was the same for you. It was like you got home and then like you just went running around the neighborhood. You played sports with your friends, and then and I thought about it like if those two friends lived in this neighborhood, they wouldn't be on a screen. They'd be out in the front yard playing. And so I thought, am I punishing my son and depriving him of social time by not letting him get on this screen when in reality, all that's really happened is we happen to live in a neighborhood where there really aren't very many kids his age at all. So, but it's like, how do you characterize that? Obviously, I I don't think it is as beneficial to be remote from someone else, but should we really count it as not being with friends? Well, this trend starts in 2014. And what's interesting about 2014, that is the year that iPhone ownership, smartphone ownership crossed 50% in this country. We could stipulate that that has a big part of it. I think there are other things that have a big part of it, like the quality of streaming services, like Netflix and all of that. Video games are better than they've ever been before. You and I know this because we were <laughs> you're like on Atari back in the day and playing Tech Mobile. And you look at this stuff now and I'm like, man, if this exists when I was a kid, I don't know if I'd ever be outside. But there's another thing going on here too, which is the degradation and decay of institutions, whether it's your church, your community centers, like our strong ties across the board are are weak. They're, they're weaker than they've ever been before. So all of this stuff has come together and people are spending fewer in-person time with each other. And I think the question is, well, if it's digital, is 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 that just a replacement for it? You know, Jonathan Haidt at, at, in, from the NYU who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, he's done a lot of research over the past 10 years on just what this screen time has been doing to the young, younger generations. And he has convinced me that this is very bad for kids, particularly bad for teenage girls. If you look at the data around teenage girl depression, suicide, just these numbers are out of control, terrible. And I think adults are struggling too with this. I think that the the isolation, 
isolation and loneliness are not the same thing. And Peter Atia had a really good write-up about this. And there's like some conflicting data here. But I think by and large, this is a problem. And it, and it becomes, it's a problem in, for different reasons across, across different age groups. So like the way it plays out with elderly, for instance, is very different than young people. But this is political though, right? This is the people that Josh Hawley's speaking to. Like, you know, some of this data is particularly bad for certain uh groups of men, for instance, like as you get to middle age, men don't make friends. There's like, I think something like 20%. I might have that that number wrong, but some really high percentage of middle-aged men don't have any friends. And so those are the people that Holly is speaking to saying, you are, you know, you've been excluded from society. And the reason why you've been excluded from society is because of some left-wing agenda. To me, it's, it's about loneliness and isolation, but the way it crosses over with our politics, I know we've talked about this on the show before, is that if you don't have friends, that's one thing it's going to cause you to draw inward. It's going to cause you to lash out. It's going to cause you to look for something to be connected to, which might be something nefarious. But the other piece of it is, is that when you spend a very limited amount of time around other people, it means that you spend an extremely limited amount of time around people who are not exactly like you and whose interests don't just line up with yours and whose you know economic position, whose you know race, everything else, background doesn't line up with yours. And that, I think, is the most uh, helpful thing to the politics of people like Josh Hawley and the most harmful thing to the country because it shortens the distance that you have to travel in order to completely dehumanize the people who are not like you because you literally don't know them and you don't spend any time around them. And that's what scares me about it so much. Yeah. And it gets to the way of how do you de-radicalize, right? You de-radicalize not by coming in hot on the politics, but just spending time with people. You know, just putting in the time is the most important thing you could do. And honestly, you could de-radicalize you because we're susceptible to this stuff too. Like, we all go through our death spirals. There's one interesting part of the data, which is as you get older, you're, you, and there's a difference between solitude and loneliness. So I'll talk about the loneliness part of this. As you get older, you actually get less lonely until you hit 75. When you hit 75, it's a, post 75 is amongst the most dangerous, most lonely periods of time for people. Uh, Peter Atia chalks it up to two things. One is like you're, your health pretty significantly declines post 75 and you lose close friends. Not the way I lose close friends by like not keeping in touch with them. You actually lose them like they die. And possibly significant others. And Yeah. And we as a society do a terrible job of taking care of the elderly. My mom has been a nurse in nursing homes basically her entire life. And I spent a lot of time in nursing home wards. We as a society stick the elderly in these places and forget about them. I know that's a simplification, but that's what I've seen. Whereas other societies, you know, I spent a lot of time in Ghana, for example, when I was in my 20s. It's an intergenerational system like India is, where the elderly are, are kept around and are in many ways looked up to. And in a way, it solves the young people issue too, because the young people and the elderly actually spend a ton of time together, while the sort of the, the working age people are actually the least likely to be around, Right. And so there's like this cross-generational bond that happens that isn't as strong in the United States right now. Yeah, when I when I get to be a lot older, like, you know, I I would hope that like my daughter or my son would make room in their home for my wife and I. Like, yeah. That's what I would want. You know, I would want to be – I would – look, I'm weird about this anyway. Like I don't ever want my kids to leave 
for college or whatever, but I know that I need to let them. But like, <laughs> I, I, I want to like when I'm much older, I want to wake up uh, and like go upstairs and hug my grandkids. Like that's that's yeah. you know you want to be a part of the larger family unit. Yeah, and I think like, we'll take a step back from this and say, all right, given that we don't. Other than the Georgia Senate election, we got a little bit of time between now and elections so we can talk about this more as like a life thing. And I think a lot of people are struggling with this to say, like, what do you do about this phenomenon? Because I think we all deal with it. And I had a good conversation. You know, we have mutual friend Jamie Hodari. I had dinner with him the other day and I was just, we were just talking about how I'm very close to my friends in New York. But we haven't during this period of time, we've seen the same trend. Like we're we're not having the regular Sunday dinners as much as we used to have. We're not seeing each other in person as much. And he was like, because we have all these text threads and things. And he's like, like, I don't engage on these threads very much because as you know me, I'm not a big digital communication person. And we're like, what do we do about this? And I think proximity is one answer, right? Like I had an opportunity to to buy a place in New York recently and I decided to buy a place in Brooklyn so I could be like in walking distance to my friends. So that's one option. I think a second is if you're somebody who's dealing with this in your own life, take risks, like join new things, try new sports or dust off your old sports. And whether you're good or bad or at whatever hobby it is, it doesn't matter. Just show up, meet new people, introduce yourselves to people. Uh, And then I would say like organize rituals, right? So don't just have friends. Don't just have family members. I know you do this with your family. Like have a, your extended family, like have a regular Sunday dinner. Have a Saturday walk you have with your best friend and keep it sacred, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Instead of what, because what happens otherwise is you get so busy that you don't have time for it. So what you have to do, like anything else you value, is you've got to be like, I have to find time for the other stuff around this thing that I'm definitely going to do. Right. Yeah. Ritual is such a, a powerful thing, right? Like this podcast is a ritual in many ways. Like we happen to record it, but it's a conversation I look forward to every week. and. You know, there's and there's dumb stuff that shows up on here, like the bills thing. But it's like even even the people who hate the bills uh, and the fact that we talk about it will come and and say to me uh, in person sometimes, like it's so dumb, but it's it's actually something that's become part of my life now. Is that I, whether I whether I watch sports or not, I know what's going to happen with the bills, and it's like this conversation <laughs> yeah. that I just know I'm going to see. You know, I should talk about the Chiefs more because people deserve to be happy. They do deserve to be honestly. You guys are you guys have surpassed us in the odds for the Super Bowl, and it's actually I'm happy about it because I don't even want to expect that we're going to win the Super Bowl this year. It's just really sad. Well, then you should be very happy. Um. <laughs> well, I think it's a good good opportunity to wrap up, and I'll just say, uh, I know people are dealing with this. This is beyond our politics; it's related to our politics. And I would say that politics is about solving problems for Democrats. For Republicans, it's about exploiting problems. So I think for good candidates out there, the Republicans will be less likely to exploit this problem if we start positing solutions to it. And I'm hoping that we have candidates out there who actually start speaking about this issue more. Well, and for people listening, it goes back to the whole mission of this podcast, which is it's not just about being prepared to have difficult political conversations with people who disagree with you. Sometimes it's literally just about inviting people who aren't exactly like you and don't see the world you do into the things you do socially. Like it it may not be that you need to figure out how to convince your friend from high school who's become very conservative not to be so conservative. It may be that you just need to invite them out to dinner with your other friends from high school so that over time they realize like, oh, they have friends who are liberal. Maybe they shouldn't hate liberals as much, right? And also because 
you deserve to continue to have that relationship with your friend. Politics shouldn't stand in the way. So uh, I think it's right within the mission of the show. All right. Last week, we talked about uh, the idea of like rebranding capitalism, uh, particularly rebranding, you know, the idea of like the left version of capitalism in this country rather than it being called socialism. I think what we came up with as our leader in the clubhouse was compassionate capitalism. And then we invited all of you to, uh, you know, give us some some of your ideas as to what it should be called. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great ideas that were sent in. Uh, we'll review some of them here. Like uh, one of our listeners, Jim, sent in, I'm just going to pick a few of these, um, capitalism within reason, capitalism with heart. I like that one. Uh, let's see, sustainable capitalism, big picture capitalism, I like. <laughs> this one's longer. Capitalism, but billionaires also pay taxes and follow rules. Like that one. Uh, People-centered capitalism is a really good one. So anyway, we appreciate Jim writing in. We appreciate everybody else who did. If, you know, there's something that we said in this episode, whatever it is, feel free to let us know that you did or didn't like it or whatever. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. You can email us, m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. As always, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. I should throw in that I'm trying this new thing post, uh, so it's in beta, but I'm at Jason Kander on that. Anyway, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, Adesua Agbenile, and Sarah Schmid. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.